Thank you, Brother Gail. Good morning. How's everyone this morning? Well, good. Glad to hear it. I think summer has finally arrived. I know it's been warm out for the last couple of weeks, but I looked at the seven-day forecast yesterday, and it looks like summer is here. I think I'm seeing 99 almost every day this week. So the heat is going to be on. So I would encourage you to prepare. Uh, the summer is always an interesting time for those of us, particularly who work outside. Uh, the heat adds its own difficulties to our day. Uh, but we, we soldier on. We struggle through it. Uh, life does seem to have its challenges, and sometimes the heat is one of those. But we're looking forward to it. Uh, it's going to be a good time. We should be able to get some work done. The, the, the rain is going to stay away, and it's going to heat up. So we'll deal with those challenges as they come. This morning, I want to talk about another kind of challenge with you, however. We're going to begin a new series in our study of the book of Acts here over the next several weeks. And we're going to be moving into Acts chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at what we've termed the Acts of the Spirit Life. We're going to see what that means for the life of the believer. And particularly in this new study that we're going to go into, we're going to see the Acts of the Spirit Life through trying times. Because as we've seen for the last several weeks in our study of the book of Acts in chapters 2 and 3, we have seen the community of believers come to be built. Christ has died on the cross. He has gone to the grave. He has been resurrected. He has ascended to heaven. He has given his commission to his disciples. And those disciples have gathered in Jerusalem where we saw in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit fell on the believers there and the number of the people came to about 120. And we saw... Uh, after that, how is Peter's sermon on Pentecost, another 3,000 people were saved. So the community of believers has grown. And Acts chapter 2 and 3 record for us how this community of believers of some 3,000 people had favor with all of the people. It says that they were held in high regard by all of the people. They had a good name. They had a good reputation in all of the things that they were doing. The people had seen their works. They had seen their acts. They had seen how they cared for one another, how they provided one another, uh, how they loved one another. They had witnessed these things in this community of believers. And the word tells us that they were held in high regard by all of the people in Jerusalem. But as we're going to see over the next several weeks, that is going to change. No longer is this community of believers going to continue to be held in high regard. They're actually now going to be experiencing some adversity, some difficulty, some trouble, and even some persecution. So as we go through the next four weeks, we're going to look at that concept of adversity. And we're going to see what that means in the life of the believer, the life of the Christ follower. And we're going to try and draw out some principles of how the believer is to live in trying times. Because living one way is easy when there's nothing opposing you. When you have it easy, it's easy to live. But when persecution comes, when adversity comes, that becomes much more difficult. And it becomes harder to say, stay true to what it is that we believe. So as we go through these next four weeks, we want to draw out those principles. What does it mean to be a Christ follower living in times of difficulty? And how can we overcome this adversity? Because adversity is not something that's to be avoided. It's not something that's simply to be endured, but rather adversity is something that is going to define the life of the believer. Ever since Acts chapter 4 and the infant church began to experience their first stage of adversity and difficulty and challenge and persecution, the church has experienced that ever since, right on down to our day to day. Now, those of us who live in America and live in the West are not necessarily familiar 
with adversity or with persecution particularly. But that day is not far off. You can already see it in the headlines of our day as the government begins to infringe upon our religious rights as believers, as our government begins to take the name of God not only out of the public square but out of our schools and begins to infringe on our rights further and further. We can see that that day of adversity and that day of persecution is not far off. Acts chapter 4 gives us the keys or the principles that we need to know in order to deal with these trying times, with these difficult circumstances that we as Christ followers are all destined to encounter at one point or another. So that's what we're going to look at in the grand scheme over the next four weeks. Today we're going to look at something more specific. We're going to look at what it is that believers have and have the ability to use in order to overcome or deal with their adversity. The thing that we have is the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit fell on all of the believers at Jerusalem, on all 120 people, and then went out to the 3,000. And the Spirit is continuing His work. He is continuing His effort. And more people, the Word records for us, are continuing to be saved. Going forward, more and more are being added to the church daily. The Holy Spirit is the one who is carrying out this work, who is empowering these believers to be effective to what it is that Christ has called them to. We want to see today what is it about this principle of being spirit-filled that will help us deal with our adversity and deal with the persecution that is going to come. Now, the early church, the disciples Peter and John endured extreme, severe persecution, even to the point of death eventually. Now, most of us have not experienced that or may not experience that in our own, own lifetimes, but it doesn't mean that there aren't principles here for us to understand and apply in our own lives. And that's what we want to see today. We need to understand that the life of a disciple, the life of a Christ follower is one that is marked by diversity. If you're not experiencing adversity, then there's something wrong with your walk. Because the scriptures affirm that believers will experience adversity. Our very existence, our very nature as indwelt Christ followers provokes adversity with people. It provokes difficulty and tension with people in our world. That is an identifying mark of a Christ follower. Adversity is something that we are defined by. And we want to see today how to deal with that. Not only to endure it. We want to be careful here. We're not only called to endure adversity or endure persecution, but we're called as Christ followers to advance in spite of that adversity, to keep moving, to keep proclaiming the gospel, to keep growing the kingdom of God, to keep advancing that message that we've been entrusted with. And that's what we want to see as the first mark of a believer is that we are called to have a bold witness. We are not a people who shrink back, who shirk away from our responsibility, from our duty. The first indication of a true believer is someone that shares their faith with people. If you look through the history recorded in Acts, the first response of new converts was always what? That they shared their faith with people. They told people what had happened to them. They were bold in their proclamation. They weren't people who got saved and then went and lived in a compound somewhere and hid away in the safety and security of their salvation. They were people who told everyone they met. They shared that truth. They shared that truth with passion to all those that they encountered. We too, as Latter-day Christ followers, are called to be the same way and to do the same thing. To have a bold witness, even in spite of any adversity or persecution that we may meet. So that's what we want to get into this morning. What does a spirit-filled life look like? What does it mean to live a spirit-filled life? Well, number one, we need to recognize that living a spirit-filled life provokes a reaction from people. 
Okay, you cannot stay where you are and be a Christ follower. Your life, your existence, what is inside of you as a, as a regenerated Christ follower provokes a reaction in people. Now, isn't it interesting or do you find it interesting how a single event, a single person or a concept can provoke opposing reactions? Okay, two people can look at the same thing or the same person and have a completely different reaction to it. This happens all the time, and I can give you an example. If I stand here today and I mention to you the Kansas Jayhawks, what kind of response am I going to get? I got a rock chalk over here. I think I heard a boo over here, right? Kansas Jayhawks. I'm going to get two different responses. How about, let's try this. How about uh, Donald Trump? I'm going to get two different reactions to that one person, aren't I? Two different reactions. Two different people can look at the same person, same event, and have completely different reactions to it. Now, I'm not going to argue in favor of one or the other. But what I will say is that we can look at the things that are said and that uh, occur as a result of the action of our president. And depending upon who you are, your political persuasion, and how you view those events, you're going to come up with two entirely different reactions. That's not an uncommon thing. We see the same thing going on in the story from Acts chapter 4 this morning. If you remember the history of the story here, let's just take it one step back. If you remember in Acts chapter 3 that we looked at for a couple of weeks ago, Peter and John have gone to the temple at the time of prayer. They've encountered a lame man who was begging for alms at the entrance to the temple. He asked Peter and John for a handout, for something. He was expecting some money. But the disciples tell them, we don't have any money. But what we do have, we offer to you. We give to you. And they tell the man to rise up and walk and be healed. And he does that. And this lame man who has been lame since his birth is now walking. It says he was leaping and jumping and proclaiming what had happened to him. So they encounter this man. They heal this man. And they use this healing, this miracle, this work of the Spirit as a catalyst to share the gospel with all those who are gathered at the temple that day. And you remember we said a few weeks ago that several hundred, perhaps several thousand, gathered in Solomon's porch to hear this sermon, this message that Peter offered, talking about who had really healed this man. He says, it wasn't us, it wasn't by our power, it wasn't our status, it wasn't our position that healed him, but rather it was Jesus that healed him. And Jesus healed him through faith. And we saw the week after that how Peter also preached to them. It was the act of repentance that was going to save them. It was faith in Christ, but it was repentance from their sin, the sin of crucifying Christ on that cross that would bring them the true healing that they all needed. The story today is simply a continuation of what is happening in Acts chapter 3. We see here the very end of the story, the last couple of verses. And if you look at uh, verse 1 there. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So we see in this encounter, in the end of this story right here, what happens. Peter has been preaching this sermon and all of a sudden the authorities break in. They break in. They've heard about what's going on. They've heard about what's being said here in Solomon's porch that day. They're not happy about it for one reason or another that we'll discuss in a moment. But they're not happy about it. And it says they are greatly annoyed. They are angry. They are upset. They are irritated with what the disciples are preaching and teaching here. And they lay hands on them and they arrest them and they take them into custody and they leave them. They throw them in jail overnight. So there, we want to see here that there's two different reactions this reaction that the leadership, that the authorities, that the temple priests had was a reaction of fear. 
They were afraid of what was being said. They were afraid of what had happened there because they saw it as a challenge to their own power. So the words that Peter and John are speaking in this sermon or that are speaking at the temple that day provoke this reaction of fear from the temple. Why were they afraid? Well, two reasons. It gives them right there in the passage. They were doing two things that the leaders of the temple did not want them to be doing. Number one, they were teaching the people. Teaching the people was something that was solely the responsibility of the temple priests. They were charged with teaching the people. No one else was supposed to be doing this. And this was a way that they protected what they considered to be orthodox doctrine. They didn't let anyone else come in and teach. Only the priests who had been trained, who had been indoctrinated to what truth was, were allowed to teach. Peter, standing here in the temple on Solomon's porch, preaching or teaching the people was something that they saw as anathema. They were upset about it and they intended to stop it at all costs. They were afraid of what he was saying. They were afraid of what he was teaching. But not only was he teaching them, what they were really upset about is the fact that they were preaching Jesus to the people. Remember, Jesus is the one that they have just crucified, the one that they've just hung on a cross and thought that they had finally dealt with had taken care of, had gotten out of their way, gotten out of their hair. And now here stands one of his adherents, the Apostle Peter, preaching the resurrection from the dead in the name of Jesus. So these were the two things that upset the temple leadership. The people that were gathered there that day, it says, are the temple priests, the captain of the guard, which simply means the second in command of all the priests, and the Sadducees. The Sadducees are the group who has instigated this arrest. The Sadducees, we remember, were a, what would probably be called in our time the conservative branch of Judaism. Okay? They were very conservative in what they believed. They were a, a party that was opposed to the Pharisees that we've talked about a number of times. But the Sadducees had some very specific beliefs. Number one, they did not believe in angels or demons. They didn't believe anything in the spirit world. Number two, they did not believe in a resurrection from the dead. Okay, they, they thought that this life was it. Once you live this natural life, your body died, that was it. It was all over and done with. So we see here it's the Sadducees who are the ones who are instigating this arrest of Peter and John. They're very upset about what's going on. Not only because they're preaching the name of Jesus, but because they're preaching a resurrection in general. Which was contradictory to what they were teaching in the temple. And they were very concerned and very upset over this. So they arrest them and they drag them in and they're going to set them before the court and have a hearing over just what it is they're teaching and why and what they're basing this teaching on. All of this is motivated out of fear. They are afraid for their own position. They do not want the common man, the people, to be stirred up about this doctrine of resurrection. They don't want this idea of resurrection to take hold with the people because they're afraid of where it might lead. And where it might lead eventually is to a challenge to their authority and a challenge to their leadership. So what it is, what we need to see here is that this is a reaction of fear. What the disciples have done have produced fear in the authorities and in the leadership. But it's a double-edged sword. It's not only produced a reaction of fear in one group, but as we said a moment ago, it's produced an entirely different reaction in the second group. If you look at verse 4, it says, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So as I said a moment ago, this intervention of the authorities is really an intervention in the middle of our story. Peter has healed a man through the power of the Holy Spirit. He has now preached Jesus to the people who were there and witnessed it and saw it. And this insertion, this intervention of the authorities in the middle of it is really just a parenthesis. What we really want to see is verse 4 is the conclusion to chapter 3. Many who heard the word that day 
believed. There was a reaction of faith. There was a reaction of faith on the people that heard the word. The authorities were afraid. They were fearful of what they were preaching and teaching. But the power of the gospel spoken through a Christ follower administered via the Holy Spirit brought many to faith. And it says the number of the men now came to about 5,000. That doesn't include the women. So we know the total group of believers was probably somewhere in the 10 to 12,000 range. In just a few short weeks, we've seen the community of believers grow from around 120 up to 3,000, now up to 5,000. The gospel is spreading like wildfire. God is working through his people. He's doing mighty acts and signs and wonders. And those people are using those signs and wonders as a reason to preach Christ to people. And people are responding. They're being saved. They're being saved through the preaching and the teaching of what it is that these people say that they believe. The question for us is, is are we that type of people? Do we live that type of life? Are we a people who provoke a reaction in people? Are you someone who provokes a reaction at your job, in your family, with your friends, acquaintances, and strangers? Are you a person who provokes a reaction? Because the Bible teaches that we will be. Either good or bad, we will provoke a reaction in people. If you call yourself a Christ follower and you are faithful to what Christ has called you to in sharing your faith boldly, people will be saved. Whether it's one, 100, or 1,000, I don't know. But it says through your words, your faithfulness, people will be saved. But those who reject the word will be fearful of you. So what we want to see here is that my life needs to be one like the disciples here. It needs to be one that provokes a reaction, either positive or negative. Have you ever been in one of those situations where as a Christ follower, you show up at a, at a gathering of some, uh, some form or another and hear somebody say, oh, there goes that guy. There's that Bible beater. There's that guy who's always going on and on about Jesus. Jesus freaks is a common one. I hear that a lot on the job site. Oh, there's that Jesus freak again. What are they doing? They're responding to what it is that's inside of us, aren't they? Either positively or negative, one way or the other. The thing is, we don't get to decide. We don't get to decide whether they respond positively or negatively. We're simply called to witness, and the Spirit of God does the rest. Our responsibility is to provoke the reaction. If we're living a Spirit-filled life, we will be a people who are sharing our faith. If we're living a spirit-filled life, we will be sharing truth about our faith. That will provoke reactions in people. It will bring tensions into our life. The question becomes, if I'm not experiencing that, if I'm not experiencing difficulty and adversity, what does that say about my witness? If you're someone who gets along with everyone, who never has any trouble, any problems, never has any confrontation, has no difficulty or tensions with other people, what does that say about your witness? Right? Because I should either be angering the ones who are rejecting my message, or I should be seeing people coming to faith in Christ because of my message, one or the other. I have to be a person who provokes a reaction. But secondly, a spirit-filled life not only provokes a reaction from people, it produces the opportunity to witness. Okay? It not only provokes a reaction, but it gives me the actual opportunity that I say that I need. The opportunity to witness is not something that I manufacture in and of myself. 
God provides those opportunities through the Holy Spirit, a spirit-filled life, the spirit living his life out through me, through my words, through my actions is what produces the opportunity to witness. Think about it for a minute. Do you think God puts the worst player in the game? He's probably not any different than the rest of us. If you've got a sports team, let's say it's a baseball team, it's the bottom of the ninth, the game's on the line. Are you going to put in the third string guy who never went to training camp and only got into town two weeks ago? No, you're going to put the star player in, right? God functions, loosely, very similarly. The one who is spirit-filled, the one who is faithful, the one who is trusting, the one who is believing, the one who is bold in their witness, that is the one that gets the opportunity. If you never get in the game, if you've never played the game, if you've never prepared yourself to share your faith, is God going to provide those opportunities? Probably not. Being spirit-filled is what produces the opportunity to witness. Look at the passage in verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? What's happened here? They've been arrested. They've been brought in before before the Sanhedrin, the, the judicial arm of all of Judaism, they've been brought in before them to give an account of what they've done. Now, do you suppose, think about this for a moment, do you suppose that the day before when Peter and John woke up that morning, they ever anticipated going to the temple for prayer, encountering a lame man, doing a miracle, sharing the gospel, and then ending up in front of Jewish, uh, the Jewish high priest, to give an account of what they've done. You think they ever anticipated that? No, they didn't. How did they end up here? They couldn't have got there if they wanted to, if they had tried. I mean, you don't, you don't walk up to the Sanhedrin. Can I have a minute of your time? I've got something I want to share with you. That just doesn't happen. But their bold witness, that spirit-filled life that they're living has produced circumstances now where they are now standing in front of the ruling council of all of Judaism. They would have been sitting before these men giving an explanation of what it is they've done, the power by which they've done it, and what it means to the people sitting there hearing it. They could never have imagined having been sitting there the day before. They ended up there with a great opportunity to share the truth of Jesus to these people who probably never wanted to hear it, who had no interest in it. They had dealt with this Jesus thing. They had disposed of this Jesus matter. They were done with it. And yet here comes another person proclaiming the name of Jesus. So they never anticipated it. I wonder how often we anticipate in our own lives the situations that the Spirit is orchestrating for us. Do we look at the situations of our own lives as opportunities to witness? I'm not convinced that we do. More often than not, I'm convinced that we spend a lot of time complaining about the situations we're in. I mean, think about this for a moment. Do you suppose Peter and John were happy about being arrested and standing before the judge in a court? In a court that had the power of their life hanging over them? Probably not. But do we hear them complain about it? Do we hear them whine about it? No. They use the opportunity to share Jesus with people. And I wonder how many of us have difficult situations in our lives or difficult people in our lives that the Spirit has brought into our circle 
that we whine and complain about rather than seeing the opportunity that has been presented to us. How many of you sit next to a difficult person in your cubicle at work or work on a job site with a number of difficult people who, or share a work van with a difficult person? Whatever situation or scenario that is, why do you think you ended up there as a Christ follower? Was it just random chance? I don't believe in randomness. I don't believe in chance and I don't believe in luck. I believe in a sovereign God who is orchestrating all things for his glory. And I believe that we end up in the situations that we are in because God has a plan to use us to reach those people. Now, it doesn't mean that every one of them will always respond positively. Remember, we talked about the two types of reactions. Some do reject, but some will be saved. The problem is we don't know who's who, and it's not our decision to make. That's left up to the Spirit of God. But if we are living a Spirit-filled life, those situations, those opportunities where people will become saved are presented to us. When we're willing to witness and speak the truth about what we believe, God gives us opportunity to do that. My question for you is if you're not experiencing any of those opportunities, if you, I mean, I've heard this a number of different times. Well, God's just not giving me an opportunity right now. Is that a reflection on God? Or is that a reflection on you? Spirit-filled life means I'll have opportunity to share my faith, to share the truth with people. If you've ever worked in sales, you know that the, the number one most important thing in working in sales is, is getting your product or your service in front of the right audience, even in advertising as well. If you're trying to sell something, you need to get that product or service in front of the right audience. The right people need to see it, the right people need to hear it, and then those people will respond probably by purchasing your product or your service. This is how we need to interpret our lives as well to some degree. We need to be in front of a receptive audience. We need to be in front of people who will hear the gospel and respond to it. But if I'm not prepared, if I'm not living a spirit-filled life, those opportunities are going to be few and far between, are they not? Most of the opportunities to get your product or service in front of a right audience is produced by one of two things, either who you know or what you've done. In this case, for Peter and John, it's both. It is who they know. It's Jesus. And through what they've done. They've showed that they're living a spirit-filled life through their bold witness, through their proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God has now placed them into a situation and a circumstance where they can share that truth with the leaders of their country, the leaders of their nation, of God's covenant people. They're sitting before these with waiting to share the truth with them. So living that spirit-filled life produces those opportunities We need to be sensitive to why God has placed us in the situations and circumstances that we find our lives. God is working through us. He is living through us and he's placing us in situations where we can be effective in what it is that he has called us to do. Again, he doesn't do anything randomly or through chance. God has a unique plan for you and your life, and he orchestrates the circumstances of your life in order to accomplish that through you. The question is, how are we responding to that? Are we being faithful and being spirit-led in the life that God is living through us? That is what he has called us to do. Thirdly, let's take a look at this. Not only does a spirit-filled life provoke reactions, not only does it produce opportunities, but it also is one that perseveres in the face of opposition. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where it gets difficult because it won't always be easy. The message that you carry is not one that is well-received by all people. 
For those who become saved, it is the greatest thing in the world. But for those who reject it, it's death. It is going to be met with opposition in all quarters. Some of you have family members who don't want to talk to you, don't want to spend time with you because of who you are in Christ. Friendships that have been lost because of your salvation, because of your spirit-filled life. Difficulties in your workplace because of your continual speaking of the truth. Those situations are produced because of how you're living and who you are. Living the Spirit-filled life provokes those reactions. It produces those environments. We are going to meet opposition. If you're not in opposition right now, just wait. It's coming, okay? It's kind of like the old saying about the weather in Kansas. If you don't like the weather, just wait a few hours. It'll change. For the Christ follower, if you're not experiencing opposition right now, just wait a little while. You soon will be. Because the message that you have, if it's being lived out through you, if it is on display, it will bring opposition. It will bring difficulty into your life. God has planned it that way. If you look at the passage here, I want to read this whole passage and then we'll kind of break it down just a little bit. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So that's the passage. We need to persevere in the face of opposition. How do we do that? Three keys. Let's look at these really quickly. Number one, we need to rely on the power of the Spirit. Okay, we must rely on the power of the Spirit. Verse 8, then Peter, what? Filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. You need to know, in the original language, the focus of a sentence or the focus of a passage always comes at the beginning. So if we look at this whole long three-verse passage here that is essentially one sentence in the original language, what is the focus here? It's what comes at the beginning. That is the fact that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. That is what the author wants us to see here. Everything that comes after this is as a result of being filled with the Spirit. Peter didn't do any of these things in his own power, his own strength, his own knowledge, his own wisdom. None of those things were accomplished because of who he is, but rather they were accomplished because of his filling with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has empowered him, has emboldened him to speak the truth to this group of people in the Sanhedrin. He is operating in the power of the Spirit. He is relying on that power. That is the only way that we can accomplish anything. You and I cannot live the Christian life on our own. We can't do it in our own power and our own strength. We don't have any. We can't do it on our own knowledge and our own wisdom because we don't have any of that either. What we do have comes from God. God provides to us richly what we need in order to accomplish the mission that he has set before us. When we try and go out in our own power and do the thing and and be a disciple, what happens? We fail. When we go out in the power of the Spirit, we succeed. The Spirit is the one who is responsible for what happens when you share your faith. When you go out into the world and you be a witness, you're not responsible for the result. You're responsible for sharing the message. The result is the responsibility of the Spirit. And when you are Spirit-filled, there is much more likelihood of it being effective or it accomplishing its intended purpose than me and myself and I going out on my own and trying to accomplish it. I don't have that power. I don't have that ability. 
Peter here in this passage, speaking to the Sanhedrin under the influence of the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, will now deliver to them the message that they need to hear in the situation that God has orchestrated and brought him into for a very specific purpose. So not only do I need to rely on the power of the Spirit, but I need to remember the promise of Jesus. This is an interesting situation that the disciples have found themselves in. As we said a moment ago, chances are they never woke up that day and anticipated standing before the Sanhedrin giving an account of a miracle they had done and by the power they had done this by. Okay? They never expected this. They've been brought here very quickly. They've been snatched away from where they were preaching. Imagine now me standing here preaching the word to you and people coming through the door laying hands on me and dragging me away and throwing me in jail. And then very shortly thereafter standing before a judge in a court asked to give an account for what it is that I've been preaching and teaching and saying to you. It happened very quickly. They never would have anticipated this. There would have not been time for preparation. But that's okay. Because the promise of Jesus says that it wouldn't be dependent on them anyway. The Spirit of God would give them the words to speak. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. I don't have it on your screen for you, so you'll have to flip there. We're going to talk about this promise of Jesus that he made to his disciples before he left the earth. He told them that persecution would be coming, that difficult times would be coming, that trouble would be coming their way. But he told them not to worry. They weren't to be anxious. They weren't to be worried about what was going to happen because Jesus had already made provision for them. He told them they could relax and not worry about what was happening because the words that they would say when they had to give an account would come from the Spirit himself. If you look at verse 16 there, Matthew 10, verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts, and they will flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Why? To bear witness before them. You'll be dragged out to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Verse 19. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. When we encounter times of adversity, difficulty, persecution, we need to understand that it is not dependent upon us for the words that we speak. God has promised through His Spirit to be with us and to give us the words to speak. When we are hauled out, when we are dragged out and asked to give an account for what we believe, we don't need to worry. God will speak through us, through the power of His Spirit. Now, we need to be careful with this. We don't want to get too carried away and say that every time that we're asked to give a defense of our faith, that the Spirit will somehow take over and and speak all of the words for us. This is a very specific instance here that's being referred to. Jesus said when they drag you out and they bring you before authorities, those in power, those in leadership, when they bring you before those people, the Spirit will speak for you. We are called to cooperate with God in what we do. And that is true in our witness. We need to be prepared to give an answer for what we believe. To our friends, to our families, to strangers on the street, to other church members, whoever they may be. But God says in his word that when we are hauled before authorities and asked to give an answer, he will speak through us. He will speak for us. We are not to worry. So we need to remember that promise of Jesus. He hasn't left us alone. He's made provision for us. In verse, uh, verse 8, the second half of verse 8, Peter now begins to speak. He says, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, and by what means this man has been healed, let it be known. 
Okay, he begins to speak to them, but it's not Peter speaking. You'll see in the boldness of this passage that it is God himself who is speaking through Peter and proclaiming Jesus Christ to the Sanhedrin, to these leaders, to these authorities who have gathered together there and brought uh, Jesus' disciples before them. It is them who is speaking. You know, I can remember, I remember as a young man when I was first getting started in, in business, I had a lot of questions about how business was done, and, I, and there were a lot of things I didn't know. I, I mean, it's okay to admit that now. I'm so far removed. But when I first started, there were a lot of things I didn't know. But I had a dad who had been in business for 20-some-odd years before I started. And when I had a question, I could always call on him. Hey, Dad, you know, what's up with this? How do I deal with this banker? How do I deal with this customer? How do I deal with this whoever? There was always someone I could call on. And that was a great comfort to me, especially when I started out, because... I didn't know a whole lot. I thought I knew it all, but I quickly found out I didn't know very much. And to have somebody that I could call on, that I could depend on in my times of difficulty was invaluable. And that only grew as time went on. Even as I, as I learned business and I grew and became more successful at it, there were then now larger and harder questions about how to run a business, how to manage customers, how to deal with money. But dad was always there. He was still there to answer those questions, and that was an incredible comfort. It gave me a peace. It gave me assurance to be able to operate. If I run into something, I'm sure Dad's seen this before, and he can probably walk me through it, talk me through it, help me through it. And even as I became a Christian, I encountered another man, Dr. Boswell, who, who has helped me in the same way in my own walk, in my own spiritual walk, who's helped me grow. And when I had a question, there was somebody I could call on. And as the questions got harder and the questions got deeper and they got tougher, he was always there to answer those questions. But even in those two great examples that I've had in my own life, there is an even yet greater example that all of us as Christ followers have. It's the promise of Jesus to always be with us. From the beginning of Scripture, even in the Old Testament, you read all the way through, God always promises what to his people? He promises his presence. His presence among his people because that presence brings us security. It brings us safety. It brings us assurance. Through the word over and over and over, the presence of God is what secures people. It's what gives them an assurance to operate from. God is always there to help us, to lead us, to guide us, to direct us, to answer those questions that come up in life. Peter and John have now found themselves standing before the Sanhedrin and asked to give an account for what it is that they've done. They're not going to be able to answer this question on their own. But Jesus has promised them that he will be with them, that the Spirit will speak through them and give the answer that needs to be given. And we see here that Peter will now share the gospel with the Sanhedrin. And he will talk about what it means, what the problem is. But he does it with a boldness that is not in and of himself. You've got to imagine this guy standing here. There were anywhere from probably 20 to 72 men, temple priests, gathered in a semicircle. They sat on a raised platform like this, and they would sit cross-legged on the floor in a semicircle. And they bring the accused in, and they set them right here in the middle with a semicircle of men standing there, sitting there questioning them, asking them to give an account for what it is that they've done and why they've done it and why they believe and what they're teaching and what they're preaching and so forth and so on. You have to imagine Peter sitting there, standing there, just ready to shrink away. You've got 72 of the smartest, sharpest guys in all of Israel questioning you about what you've done. But does he back away? Does he back down? Does he run away? Does he, does he hedge on his answer? No. He lets them have it. He tells them what's up. Let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you whose power I did this through. 
Let me tell you why. That boldness only comes from a spirit-filled life. You can't summon that on your own. That only comes from a spirit-filled life. And Peter delivers that message. And that's the third point to persevering in opposition. I've got to rely on the spirit. I need to remember the promise of Jesus. But I need to respond with purpose to the challenge. Okay? What's the challenge? By what name or power have you done this? That's the challenge. Give an account. Give a defense. Explain to me how this is accomplished. Who you believe in. That's the challenge. Peter doesn't hedge on his answer. He doesn't give some mealy-mouthed account. He doesn't, well, you know, I saw this guy one time and do it, and I, I thought I'd try it. I mean, he doesn't do any of that. He turns around and gives it right back to him. Let it be known, not only to you, but everybody in Israel. How was this done? Through the power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I didn't do it, but I want all of you to know that he did it. He turns it around and sends it right back at them. Boldness in proclaiming what it is that he believes. How many of us have that kind of boldness? Most of us can't even be bold enough to share our faith at a family dinner. A family member challenged our faith or our beliefs and we back away and we dodge. This guy stands up in front of 72 judges in a court of law and boldly proclaims what it is that he believes. He responds with a purpose. He doesn't just endure what's going on. He doesn't sit there quiet and just hope for the best. He perseveres. You know what the difference between endurance and perseverance is? To endure something is simply to accept it, to put up with it, to tolerate it. Oh, this bad thing is happening to me. I will endure it. I will tolerate it until it stops. Perseverance, I think we often think perseverance means the same thing, but it doesn't. Perseverance does mean endurance. It means to endure things. But it also means to keep on task, to stay on purpose. Peter here doesn't back away, doesn't back down and simply endure what's occurring to him, does he? He advances. He delivers the gospel. He shares the truth. He keeps moving forward. He keeps advancing his purpose. He responds with a purpose. He doesn't back away. How many of us are doing that? How many of us are bold enough to try and advance when we experience difficulty or adversity in our lives? When friends, family members, co-workers challenge us about our beliefs and the things that we say, how many of us have that kind of boldness to turn it around and deliver it right back? To share the truth. Peter didn't sugarcoat it here. He didn't give some lame answer. He turned it around and he gave them the truth. By the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified... The ones you killed is the one who did this. It's by his name, by his power, that this man is now standing before you well. Can you imagine that? Standing in a court of law, 72 guys hold the power of life and death over to you, and you stand there and tell them they're responsible for murder? How bold, how strong, all empowered by the Spirit of God. Every bit of it. Only a spirit-filled life can have that kind of witness. Only a spirit-filled life can share that kind of truth. Turns it right back around on them. We have to be a people who not only endure difficulty, who not only endure persecution, we have to advance. We've got to keep focused on what it is that God has called us to do, to share our faith, to advance the gospel. 
We have to keep moving forward, not just endure, not back away. We're not going to all withdraw into a, a commune and build a wall around our place and hope for Jesus to get back. It's to advance. It's to get out there and keep moving forward, to keep advancing in spite of adversity, in spite of difficulty, advancing. We don't just hold the ground. We're taking new ground. Think about that for a moment. It's one thing to, to defend the position. It's entirely another to advance. It's much easier to defend something and stay put. All I got to do is protect this area. But to go outside of my security, outside of my safety and advance and take new ground is a far different thing. That's what the passage is talking about here in terms of perseverance. Getting out of your security zone, out of your safe zone. Taking new ground, advancing the gospel, boldly proclaiming what it is that Jesus has done and why. That's the kind of people that we need to be. Fourthly, a spirit-filled life proclaims the reality of the gospel. Okay? A spirit-filled life must proclaim the reality of the gospel. This is what we're here for. This is what God has commissioned us to, to proclaim this reality. What is that reality? Let's look at the last couple of verses here. Verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. How do I proclaim the reality of the gospel? Two ways. Number one, by confronting sin. Okay, Jesus, or Peter here in this story does not sugarcoat the message. He does not water it down. He doesn't just say, well, you know, Jesus did it and you can believe in him too. That's not what he says. He says, this Jesus, the one whom you crucified, the stone you rejected, is the one that has now become the cornerstone. The one you rejected, your sin, your sinful rejection of Christ as Savior, he confronts their sin. Now, we can look at the parts of the passage here. Stone. This is a reference back to Psalm 118.22. Okay? He's, Peter's calling all the way back to the book of Psalms in a messianic passage. It says, uh, I got it in my notes here. Where'd it go? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. A messianic passage. Peter is applying that to Jesus and referring to Sanhedrin all the way back to that. It also references another passage in Matthew 21, verses 42 to 44. Jesus applies this passage to himself uh, in explaining what it is that he's been doing. Jesus says in verse 42, uh, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, I, Jesus, tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. It refers back to that passage. Jesus says, what is he saying here? He is saying, the kingdom is taken away from you, you sinners, and given to those who will produce its fruits. Those who are of God is whom the kingdom will be given to. It is taken away from you. And Peter takes this passage, he applies it to the members of the Sanhedrin sitting there this day. And he says, you did it. These, you are the people that he was talking about. He confronts their sin. He doesn't do it in a hateful manner. He's not judging them. He confronts their sin to get them to recognize who they are. There can never be salvation for anyone unless their sin is dealt with, unless their sin is confronted, unless their sin is repented of. We saw two weeks ago in the end of chapter 3 how Peter spent, I think, a dozen verses telling them, repent, 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 repent. 
How important is repentance? In the gospel, it's everything. There can be no salvation without repentance. Today in our world, we preach a gospel light or what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. We preach to people that you can have salvation, you can have faith, and you can inherit all the blessings. You don't need to worry about your sin. We're not even going to talk about that. We're not going to address it. Don't worry about it. You go on living your sinful lifestyle, doing what you want to do, and Jesus, man, his blood covered it all. Carry on. That's not what Peter says here. He throws it right back in their face. You who rejected him, who crucified him, you sinners, the kingdom has been stripped away from you because of your unbelief, because of your rejection. He identifies who they are. He proclaims that reality. Until I deal with the reality of my sin, I can never turn to Christ. Right? Until God shows me the depth of my depravity, the depth of my sin, I'll never turn. I will stay in that pit of sin. I will stay there comfortably until God shows me just what it really is. And Peter confronts the Sanhedrin today with the depth of their sin. But he does that not in a hateful way, not in a way to judge them, but in order to get them to turn. And if you look at verse 12, we see the other half of what he's trying to accomplish here. He's not only confronting their sin, but he's confessing Jesus. He says in verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What is he saying there? He's saying three things very quickly. Number one, Jesus is not a way. Jesus is the only way. The one and only way. There is no other way. And there is no salvation in no one else. It's a double negative in the original language. There is no salvation in no one else. It's not available anywhere else. Jesus is not one of the ways you can get it. He's not one of two ways, not one of many ways. There is no salvation for you apart from Jesus. Jesus is the only way. Number two, Jesus brings deliverance. What is it that we need? What is it that as unbelievers, as lost people that we desperately need? To be delivered from our sin. That is what we most need. And that deliverance is granted through repentance from that sin and the blood of Jesus' cross covering that sin. Hey, look, he says there in the middle of the verse, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That salvation that is delivered to us is our deliverance from sin. Jesus accomplished that. He did that for us. It is appropriated through faith, but Jesus is the one who did it. And that brings us to the third point. Jesus secures our salvation. The end of the verse there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. That word in the original language, that verb is active. Be saved. It is something someone had to do. And it, that someone is not me. It is not you. It is something Jesus did. Jesus saved you by what he did at the cross. Jesus secured you in your salvation. Again, that salvation appropriated through faith, but it was accomplished by Jesus. It's not something that I do. It's not something that I give myself or that I have the power to bestow upon myself. It's only something that Jesus does. So Peter wraps up here and he, he presents the truth to them by confronting their sin. He tells them who they are, what they've done, what needs to be done. But he confesses Jesus to him and says that Jesus is waiting. Jesus is the way. He's the only way. This Jesus whom healed this man... His power that healed this man, that is available to you. That healing that he spoke about in chapter 3 is available to you. If you will repent of your sin and turn in faith to him, it is available to you. So he offers the reality of the gospel to them. He preaches the message of the gospel. 
He doesn't back down. He doesn't back away. How tempting would it have been to stand there and just proclaim belief in Jesus and never deal with the reality of sin? It would have been so easy for him, but that's not how a spirit-filled life works. A spirit-filled life doesn't lie to people. A spirit-filled life doesn't share half-truths. I'm convinced that many of us today in sharing our faith and in our witness are telling people half-truths. If we are not confronting sin and dealing with the sin issue, we are not sharing the reality of the gospel. Jesus came and died on that cross because of sin. That is the central issue. That must be addressed. That is what is addressed in this passage. And it is how we can say that Peter has now proclaimed the reality of the gospel truth. The question for us is, are we proclaiming that reality in our own lives? Are we doing that at every opportunity? Are we living a spirit-filled life? Because as we said at the beginning, if we're not walking, living in the power of the spirit, we're not going to be effective. All of the things that we outlined, these four points today, are all a result of being spirit-filled. If I don't have the filling of the spirit, I can't do any of these. If I'm not spirit-filled, I won't provoke people. Because chances are I'll disappear into the shadows and keep my mouth shut and never share the truth with anyone. If I'm not spirit-filled, I won't persevere in the face of opposition. I will, I will shirk away. I will back down. The power of the Spirit is what allows me to persevere. Remembering the promise of Jesus is what allows me to persevere. Advancing the gospel helps me persevere. I can only do those things through the power of the Spirit. The opportunities that I need to share my faith won't come if I'm not spirit-filled. If I'm not walking and being led by the power of the Spirit, being prepared to give an account and a reason for what it is that I believe, those opportunities simply will not materialize. If you look into your own life and you're not having opportunity to share your faith, that needs to signal to you to ask the question, why? Why am I not sharing my faith? Why am I not getting these opportunities? And then finally, a spirit-filled life is one that proclaims the reality of the gospel. You can do all of these other things, but if you don't ever share the gospel, what good have you done? You have to share the truth with people. It's not about just living a good life. It's not just about being friendly and being helpful. It's about sharing the truth with people who desperately need it who desperately need to hear that they are lost in their sin, but that there is a way out, that there is a way to be delivered from that sin and saved from that sin. We carry that message. It is the message that we as Christ followers need to deliver people. So the question becomes, if a spirit-filled life is one that produces all of these things, what do I need to do? What is my next step to living a spirit-filled life? How do I become spirit-filled? Let's pray. Joe.